Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, I'm the editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by George Robertson, who is a former NATO General Secretary and was the UK's Secretary of State for Defence from 1997 to 1999. In a recent column for Prospect, which we titled A Bonfire of Complacency, George wondered about the transformation of Putin, who he's met nine times from someone he did, quotes, good cordial business with, to the tyrant who invaded Ukraine. So, George, in the first paragraph of your column, you cite Warren Buffett, who was referring to the 2008 financial crash when he said, I violated the Noah rule, predicting rain doesn't count, building the ark does. And you lament the fact that the West fell into this trap over Russia by not building an ark in case of the return of great power conflict. So I suppose my opening question is, why did we fail to prepare for the threat of war? Uh, Was the West too focused on China? We were focused, we are focused on China. uh, And to some extent, we've regarded uh, Russia as being of a lesser consequence than a China with a grand strategy that is being played out across the world. Our policy on Russia was partly optimism, partly wishful thinking, uh, and partly based on a degree of experience that people had with Vladimir Putin, who brought back a degree of control and certainty and stability to the Russian Federation, and who I think we believed, maybe erroneously now in retrospect, but we believe was going to actually make Russia an ordinary player uh, in the East-West relationship. You, you, you met Putin nine times, as I said. Um, what was he like when you met him and what was your relationship with him like? Well, over the, the three years, had that relationship. You know, he certainly grew in terms of his own self-confidence. When he took over, he wasn't yet president. He'd, he'd only just uh, been catapulted into the position by the sudden resignation of uh, Boris Yeltsin. His head was down. But even at the very first meeting, he made it clear that he knew where he wanted Russia to go. He actually said specifically, I want... Russia to be part of Western Europe. Now, that's not necessarily geographically accurate, but accurate. But 
we knew what he meant. You know, Western Europe at that time was stable, it was prosperous, um, it was unthreatening. And I think he saw himself taking Russia to the position of being very much part of that. Um, you know, he was trying to deal with the, uh, going, to, going to deal with the chaos left behind by Boris Yeltsin. Um, and I think uh, he had a vision even then of Russia as being a major player in the world and, and equal to either Western Europe or the United States of America. Um, and, you know, clearly that ambition grew and grew until it became pretty well an obsession. And your own relationship with him? I, do, I mean, I know you, you took him to Scotland and met him there and uh, as, as well as in other parts of the world. No, I didn't take him to Scotland. No, he, uh, he, he'd been to Scotland as deputy mayor of St. Right. Petersburg mm. uh, when the convener of East Lothian uh, District Council took him to a local pie shop in Preston Pans. Uh, it had stuck in his memory, maybe, because uh, former lieutenant colonels of the KGB were not used to going to pie shops in Preston Pans. <laughs> um, but he certainly said that he'd, he'd liked Scotland or what he'd seen of Scotland. Uh, now, I, I don't consider himself to have been a buddy. I met a lot of uh, heads of state and heads of government, as you do. Um, but, you know, I, I, I got a degree of relationship with him. So in some of the private conversations, there was a degree of informality about the conversation where I thought that I got, I got the measure of the, of the guy. If I could just say to you that I met Vladimir Putin before George W. Bush did. And when I was in the Oval Office, uh, Bush asked me um, what my impression was about, uh, about Putin. And I said to him, I think you'll get on. And uh, George Bush asked one of his characteristic questions, which was, what do you mean by that? Um, and I had sort of hadn't, suddenly had to sort of think it through on the spot. And I said, well, first of all, the two of you have come late uh, in life to politics. Um, secondly, uh, both of you don't come from the capital city of the countries that you now represent. Um, thirdly, you've both been elected on a very narrow margin. In fact, George W. Bush had, had not been elected on any margin. Um, but Putin's first election had been one where it was actually, you know, he was just over 50% of the vote. I said, both of you are, are running very large countries. Both of you have got huge expectations riding on you. Uh, and finally, I said, both of you give the impression, which I hold myself, which is how the hell did I get here? Um, so he sort of laughed, but in a way that was, that was quite true. You know, these were characteristics that they had in common, and in the initial stages, they actually did get on quite well. So what do you think happened? Uh, I mean, you, you've described a, a, a new dawn in relations between Russia and NATO in 2002, and here we are 20 years later uh, in a very different position. As you've observed Putin over those 20 years, what do you think happened to that man? He's been in power too long. Um, he's basically closed down pretty well all opposition to him or, or even challenge to him. 
Um, he doesn't have a Politburo, which is what uh, previous Soviet leaders had to to deal with, uh, a completely acquiescent parliament. Um, and you get more and more remote over the years. Uh, you don't meet ordinary people. You don't meet people who disagree with you, certainly more than once. And gradually, illusions become delusions, and you start believing your own, your own propaganda. Uh, and on top of that, uh, the, um, the decision uh, of NATO at the 2008 Bucharest summit um, uh, to say that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO was, you know, to my mind, not the cleverest thing that, that NATO has done. It has certainly inflamed the Russians, but it also undermined the process that we had in place for making sure that countries who joined NATO contributed to security as well as benefiting from security. Um, and then after that, there was the, uh, the, the war with Georgia uh, and a whole series of other things which began to prey on, clearly prey on Putin's mind um, as he wasn't getting that degree of attention, respect, uh, equality. Uh, in the in the global situation that he craved and which he believed Russia deserved. You say in your piece that when signing the Rome Declaration, that was the declaration that really set out the, the hopes for a new relationship between NATO and Russia in May 2002, that there were what you call hard-headed realists on both sides. What happened to the hard-headed realists on Putin's side? And are there any left around? It sounds as though you're describing a position where there is no one now left around to challenge him or advise him. It would appear that he's restricted those around about him to a very small group of people who seem to have the same fixations uh, that he has. Um, so a lot of the hard-headed realists who, who basically wanted to make the NATO-Russia relationship work and see where, basically, where it took us all. Um, and remember that, you know, the, the, the relationship was not based on rhetoric alone. Um, the, the nice words of the, the Rome summit were followed up by a lot of concrete action. Um, I downloaded uh, last night from the NATO website the chronology of all of the different working groups that had been set up and were actually functioning um, under the NATO-Russia Council banner. Um, I, I myself went to a big meeting of all the Russian military with the, our representatives uh, in Rome at the NATO Defence College uh, where we talked about military aspects of counter-terrorism, and we did the, uh, the reverse of that in Moscow a year later. So, you know, we, we were actually working on things like non-proliferation, talking about search and rescue at sea, about crisis management, um, about arms control. All of these things were all going on. So that the, you know, there, there was a lot of realistic, important... Um, bipartisan activity that might have led on to something uh, had it not been derailed by um, uh, the events that subsequently took place, whether it was Georgia, Bucharest, or what was whatever was happening in Vladimir Putin's mind uh, about the role of Russia in the world. 
I was interested that you you argued in your column that it was the actually the the expansion of the EU rather than NATO that uh, became Putin's main obsession. I strongly believe that, and I don't think there's going to be any settlement uh, in Ukraine that the Russians would accept that involves Ukraine joining the European Union. Um, I think uh, it's convenient for for Putin to use domestically the ogre of NATO because the Russian population has grown over the years used to the propaganda about NATO. Uh, even in the best of days, that propaganda was still around. But actually, in reality, it's the EU that changes countries. You know, NATO doesn't change countries. It's a security relationship. But the EU has transformed former communist countries into mixed economy countries, you know, where uh, the, the leadership of the party has become the leadership of parliaments, you know, where democracy, the rule of law, uh, elect free elections and free speech are all guaranteed by, by the European Union standards, which are basically adopted uh, chapter by chapter by these individual countries. So, you know, having a European Union country so close to Russia and another Slavic country so close to Russia would be a real threat to the, to the Putin model. So I think that is more of a worry and a preoccupation to him. But it can't be declared because the, the, the population of Russia is not as aware of the European Union and its intricacies uh, as they are in the Kremlin. The uh, Pentagon chief Lloyd Austin uh, recently said that the US wants to, quote, see Russia weaken to a degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it's done in invading Ukraine. I mean, politicians in the West have to be terribly careful about the language they're using in lest they seem to play to the very paranoia that Putin is whipping up in Russia. I think language is going to be very, very important here. I think that... Uh, uh, some of the language that Putin is using about uh, a Nazi regime in the government of uh, of Ukraine, the denazification of Ukrainian society, is is crossing boundaries that, that that take Russia into realms that are sort of impossibilism. Uh, and I think that uh, you know commentators from the West should also be very careful about what they say because it's, uh, it's echoed and, uh, and amplified uh, inside the Kremlin and inside the, uh, the Putin Dasha. Um, so, you know, I think we, you know, we, we could provoke this pretty unstable individual and, you know, irrationally behaving individual into doing things that, that are not in our interest to do. So I, I would certainly say to politicians in the West, You'll be very, very careful what you see um, because it can have much wider repercussions. You, you've operated at the highest levels of NATO and in, and in Europe and were um, very involved in the Yugoslavian, post-Yugoslavian um, violence and, and wars. How do, you, how do you see this one ending? It's not easy to see how, how these... Uh, 
these things end um, because it'll depend on a whole series of different elements, uh, all of which are independent and uh, all of which are, are can often be contra contradictory. I think that that now Putin uh, will have moderated his objective, which I think originally was, you know, a massive invasion of Ukraine, the decapitation of the Zelensky government, you know, and a Ukraine that was absorbed into the greater Russia. I think that ambition is probably much reduced now, and all he wants to do is capture Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, uh, and the uh, the corridor right round to join up with uh, Transnistria, which they have illegally occupied for for some time, cutting you know the rest of Ukraine off from the uh, from from the sea. But the Ukrainians know that that is his objective, and and so does the outside world. So I I don't think it's going to be easy to predict how, how this is uh, this is actually going to end. I think it. It depends. The, the end of any conflict depends on the exhaustion of one side or the other. And there are no signs at the moment that either side is at that point of exhaustion. And even if at the end of the day the Russians felt that they could simply settle on the basis of taking eastern Ukraine, the rest of the Ukrainians will never accept that. So Putin will have on his hands another couple of decades of an Afghanistan-type Afghanistan conflict ongoing on its, uh, on its borders. So, you know, I, it's difficult to know what, the, what was on inside the mind of one man, but it's essentially that will determine what the outcome is, is going to be. And I think one of the things that might be an element in that mind, that mindset, is the, is the fact that by 2050, the Russian population will be over 50% Muslim. I don't think many people are sufficiently aware of that fact, but I think Vladimir Putin will be. And it may well be that one of his objectives of absorbing Ukraine into Russia was the fact that 44 million Ukrainians would certainly change that balance, especially when the Russian population is actually declining all the time. So you know, the, the, there are a number of different motivations that will be in play, and that might well be one of them that we haven't actually paid sufficient attention to up to now. Putin, it seems to me, has rather brilliantly exploited his possession of tactical nuclear weapons on nuclear weapons in general. That's a very difficult one for NATO to know how to play, isn't it? How would you think, on the NATO side, people are interpreting his statements? Well, he is a nuclear power, um, and he makes noises about it, and he's increased the alert level of the nuclear weapons, but it, but not actually increased it to the highest level. And and he and and especially the military commanders round about him know that there is a threshold uh, beyond which your country, the motherland, is actually in danger. The existence of your country is in danger. So you, know, you, you can use nuclear blackmail and you can use nuclear threats, but the moment you cross over that, that level into using the nuclear weapons, then you're into a territory of complete ambiguity 
that involves risking, you know, the motherland completely. And you know, the motherland, you know, is a very, very important feature there. So it should be that anybody who has got charge of nuclear weapons, you know, and I used to be in that chain of command, you know, it's got to recognize that you're talking about horrible, terrible weapons. Uh, and you're talking about Armageddon if you start the process of using them. They are designed never to be used. That's their whole purpose, is not to be used. They simply tell the other side that there is an unacceptable price to be paid if they were to be used. So the moment you've used one, however limited, however tactical, um, then you've crossed over a line which I don't think that Putin, or certainly the people around about him, are willing to do unless, unless the motherland itself was under threat. And since there is no question of that, uh, then I think that they will, they will stand, stand back from that line. Doesn't the whole theory of nuclear deterrence rely on the sort of rational thought that you've just laid out? But, but it's possible that we're dealing with somebody who is not rational at the moment. You might, you might think that it was a useful thing to threaten. Um, and you might, in your darkest moments, think that you could get away with using a tactical weapon. But I think that, that even if you were tempted to do it and, get, and, and pretend to get away with it, there are people round about you who have been trained through their whole life in service to recognise that their country and its existence would be called into question if they were to if they were to be used. So I, you know, I I, I hope that that is the case. Um, but you know, we're in a, in a very very dangerous world where this has come into play, uh, and um, you know, um, I think that nuclear proliferation is now going to be a serious problem. You know, the question will be asked, would this have happened to Ukraine if they had not given up the nuclear weapons uh, in 1994 uh, in return for the Budapest Memorandum and the guarantees that came with that? Would they be being attacked if they still had these former Soviet nuclear weapons? You know, would other countries, you know, um, do it? You know, what, what, about, what about Turkey? What about Saudi Arabia? What about... Those countries, you know, the lesson, unfortunately, that is going to be going to be drawn by this is that perhaps the only way that you can be protected in the nuclear era is to have a nuclear weapon yourself, and that reverses, you know, decades of non-proliferation where we uh, where we eschewed the idea that proliferation was a good idea and that nuclear weapons should be kept in the hands only of that limited number of nations at that time we're speaking on day 61 of the invasion are you surprised that the that the ukrainian forces have have managed to hold out so well and as as the as the war moves on to a different kind of much more open battle uh, are you optimistic that they will be able to perform as well in the next phase of this war well i think like many many people we've been astonished by the inefficiency and the uh, incompetence of the russian armed forces i think 
you know, as we did in the Cold War, we believed that the Russians or the Soviets were 10 foot tall and then discovered after the event that they, they weren't. And here we've got another illustration of the fact that, that Russia simply has not had the capability that that it pretended to have and that we thought that they probably had. So that has come as a bit of a, a, bit of a revelation, uh, though maybe it shouldn't have. Uh, I recall going uh, to the um, the garrison, the Moscow garrison of the of the Russian army, um, with the defense minister Sergei Ivanov and with the commanding general of that garrison. You know, this is the equivalent of of our uh, uh, headquarters protecting London. Um, and you know, I I got to speak to some of the uh, the soldiers who were there, most of whom were were, were conscripts. So standing with the defence minister and the garrison commander, the general, uh, I asked them how many of them in the room were going to stay on after their particular conscript period. Not a single hand went up. I asked the question again, they said, and then I, I asked the question of some of them, why not? And they said they didn't like it or they, they wanted to be back with their families. You know, they had jobs to go back to. And I, w I was stunned, I must say, that day because I thought, you know, uh, you know, I was quite used to uh, British Army, um, you know, individuals being fairly irreverent in the, in the presence of uh, the hierarchy, but I didn't expect it of the Russians. So maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised that they were actually going to be as useless as they've turned out to be. The problem is that their artillery is not useless and not incompetent. And that's why Mariupol uh, is a smouldering ruin. And that's basically what uh, will happen in the rest of the country if, if, uh, if Putin thinks that's the only way that he can subdue the Ukrainians. On the question about whether I'm surprised at the tenacity and the bravery of the Ukrainians, uh, no, not really, but uh, uh, I'm impressed by it. Uh, and I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by the, the president, who very few people gave much you know, uh, room to before this, but who has magisterially uh, led his country in the most difficult of circumstances. So, you know, the bravery of people who are fighting for their homeland and for freedom and for peace is, is really quite, quite remarkable and uh, therefore there's all the more reason for us to want them to win and win decisively. Do you hold out much hope for the meeting that's been scheduled between the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Putin, which is supposed to be happening this week? No, I don't have any hope at all. I think that you know, there will come a moment, there will come a moment when I think uh, Putin is going to have to recognise that he can't achieve what he set out to do. Um, and at that point, intermediaries will be able to have an effect. I know Antonio Guterres, and who is a good man, and I think you were pretty forthright to to Putin, but I don't think he'll be able to penetrate through the you know the the, the sort of barriers that uh, that Putin has now has now put up. There's a quotation in the in the in the Financial Times today where somebody in the circle around Putin apparently has said that Putin uh, believes the nonsense that he sees on Russian television. 
and therefore now wants to win big. And uh, you think, wait a minute, you know, he dictates what's on Russian television, and yet he's beginning to believe his own propaganda. You know, this is you know this is a very crazy world when a situation like that applies. But at the same time, um, you know, Gutierrez will be able to give him a perspective from the outside world, and maybe elements of it uh, will penetrate through. Um, but what what I think Putin should recognise is that actually, in the the near abroad, in Belarus, in Armenia, in uh, Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, the areas where where Putin sees Russian influence being maintained, they're actually able to watch what's happening in Ukraine today. And, you know, they all come to the conclusion, many of the people in the ruling circles there, that being close to Vladimir Putin is a pretty dangerous thing, pretty dangerous area to actually be. So I'm not entirely sure that that Putin will remain remote completely from what's going on. And, you know, um, the conventional wisdom is that he's not really interested in Russian public opinion. He's an autocrat. He's defenestrated the, the parliament. He's closed down any of the free press. But if he, if he was completely oblivious to public opinion, why would he be going to all the trouble of closing down all these media outlets. Why is he so scared for the people in Russia to know what's actually going on in Ukraine if he wasn't actually worried uh, about a groundswell that may that might eventually sweep him away in another current revolution? You, you end your piece talking about the desperate need for global cooperation, um, particularly on things like climate change, which is a... a, a very large and pressing issue in, in Russia itself. Do you have hopes of resuscitating the spirit of the 2002 declaration, or do you feel pretty bleak at this moment? Well, I don't think that Russia should be written off. You know, Russia is a great country. The people of Russia are wonderful people. They have an incredible ability, you know, to overcome, you know, problems. A, a very high pain threshold, but they are good people and most of them are, are Europeans like you and me. I was you know, for five years the deputy chairman of BP's Russian joint venture and I, I met so many Russians in that enterprise you know who were entrepreneurial, were vibrant, they were able, they were talented um, and, they, and they were open-minded, liberal-minded. Um, so you know Putin has created a monster in his own image, but it's not that of the, the Russian people as a whole. So post-Putin, um, Russia has got to be engaged in the world. You know, Basil Little Hart, who was one of the great strategists in the Second World War, I tried, came across a quotation saying, the key element of strategy is to think beyond the war and to the world after it. And I think we've got to do that as well. So we've got to produce a narrative for the Russian people, a way through this, you know, not, not to laden them with the guilt that properly belongs to Putin. 
but make sure that they become part of an international community that's looking at the biggest issues of our time. And climate change is, is one that is there staring the Russian people in the face. 70% of Russia is in the permafrost, and the permafrost is melting so that there are whole communities in Russia that are sinking into the, into the permafrost. You know, it is releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide in the process of, of doing so. So Russia is part of the problem, but it's also part of the solution. So things like that mean that Russia will have to eventually become part of the, of the international scene. And what we've got now to do in the West is to, to reach out to the Russians and say to them that there is, there is a better future for them in the world as part of the structures that exist at the present moment and not be in permanent uh, conflict with them. Thank you so much, George, for joining us today. Thank you, all the listeners, for tuning in to hear this discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, there's a, in addition to George's uh, essay, there's a, a, a very provocative um, piece by Samuel Moyne. There's a piece from Julian Lewis on nuclear um, deterrence. Basma Kadbani, who observed Putin at, at close quarters in Syria, and Carol Cadwallader. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.